This is The Engine Room of Democracy, a podcast series that explores how the rules and values of constitutional democracy work every day in our government and in our lives. Here we will explore major questions facing America. How do we keep government institutions accountable to citizens? How do democracies control military force? What is lawful warfare? How do we enforce it? How do the courts enforce their judgments? How do we honor the right of privacy while our security forces use electronic tools to track down bad guys? I'm your host, John Hamry, here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Each week, I sit down with remarkable individuals who had senior government positions to discuss these questions. We explore together what it means to be a government of laws. Hello, everybody. My name is John Hamry, and I welcome you to this session of the Engine Room of Democracy. We call it the Engine Room of Democracy because we're talking with leaders that have had large, serious positions in government and had to make rule of law work every day in their jobs. And so we welcome today a very dear friend, and that's General James Dubik, Lieutenant General Dubik. I've known Jim for 20 some years, retired army officer, career officer. But upon his retirement, he's unusual because upon his retirement, he went to Johns Hopkins and got his doctorate. And uh, so Jim is a warrior, but he's a scholar. He's an intellect. And it's in that capacity that I want to talk with him today. I should also mention to you that in his last assignment, he was in Iraq and his job was to help train the Iraqi military to operate in lawful, controlled ways. He's an unusual intellect and a wonderful friend, and we have this opportunity today to discuss. It's a bit of theoretical, but the question is, how do democracies manage and control military forces? You know, democracies have security needs, and they depend on military establishments. But if you think about a military establishment, it's not democratic. It's chain of command, it's an authoritarian organization. It operates in secrecy, and they've got guns. Now, this has always been a challenge for governments. Some governments, you know, the military is the government, like in Egypt today. Some governments have a Praetorian Guard, a royal household guard that protects the government from the army. Some governments will infiltrate the army with spies, you know, to try to keep track of what's going on. America has a profoundly different tradition, and it's a tradition of civilian control. Nobody is better to discuss this with us than Jim Dubik. Jim, thank you. Thank you for joining us. And let me just start. How does this work in America? Well, thanks, John. It works and it's fragile. I, I have to say that. Let me back up just a little bit and talk about Iraq, because there I was responsible for both their military force development in the Ministry of Defense and their police force development, Minister of Interior. So I had the opportunity to wrestle with how they're different, military and police forces, how they might be complementary. And certainly one of the things that I took away from there is that the rule of law, whether it's applied in the police sense or the military sense, is actually a set of interactions and relationships among people and institutions. 
And this set of activities either produces what we have in the United States as a civil control of a, of a military that is based on rule of law, or you end up with military and police forces that are simply based on authoritative rule of a person. So one of the key takeaways I, I took from Iraq was that military forces can impose the law or impose security, probably a better way to put it, but police forces have to enforce it. So therein lies a huge difference because enforcement of a law assumes there is law, that there's a body of professionals that are police and judges and correction facilities that operate according to the law, and that there's some social contract, informal though it may be, between the citizenry and the rule of law and the other enforcement capacities. And this enforcement can only take place in a secure environment. This is why in Iraq, the counteroffensive that Ray Odierno led with multinational core Iraq in 2007 and 8 was so important. Policing could not happen until there was security imposed and there was an environment in which the law could be kind of re-engineered and the police force could be retrained. So I know we're going to spend most of the time on the military, but uh, and rightfully so in this discussion, but the relationship between the two and both being derived from a common source, the rule of law, was something that I think is so far in the background in the United States, we assume it. But when you get to a place like Iraq, where everything is bare, the importance of the rule of law in both sides and the relationship of both sides and the difference between the military and police side comes right to the fore. It's starkly in your face. That's so powerful. I, I wish I had anticipated that and I would have thought about this interview in a somewhat different way because of it. So I'm going to have to ask you to come back, Jim, to talk with us about that. Let me ask you to reflect on what civilian control means in the American military. You know, it has a constitutional grounding. How does it really work? How does the military indoctrinate itself with this sort of framework? In the United States, civil control of military is, of course, a matter of constitution, matter of law, matter of regulation that is built into all the military forces and a matter of tradition. The military chain of command in the United States goes from the president through the secretary of defense, through the combatant commanders, the Pacific Command, European Command, Central Command, and the others. And it's important that we see that the chairman nor the service chiefs are in the chain of command. They're advisors to the president and secretary of defense. So the chain of command is very clear, and the legal foundation for civil control is not just part of law regulation and, and tradition. It's also a central part of every officer's education from pre-commissioning through the highest levels of professional military education at war colleges and senior service colleges and fellowships. And we are reminded of this foundation every time we're promoted. When we take our oath, for example, I swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against enemies foreign and domestic, and that my true faith and allegiance is to them, to the Constitution. And it's not to a party, it's not to a person, not to an office. And so this oath is a constant reminder of who controls our military, and that's the civilian government. We are not in control of ourselves. We are not, in a colloquial way, a self-licking ice cream cone. And the Constitution forms the basis of that. And we should be very proud of this tradition, because as you said in the introduction to this question, this is not the case in many other countries. So you are a warrior, you're an intellectual. Personally, how did the Constitution shape your leadership? Well, I think 
First of all, I want to say that being a warrior and being an intellectual are related. There's an old saw among military guys that you don't want your fighting done by fools and you don't want your thinking done by cowards. So I think there's a good relationship here between thinking, your intellectual curiosity, and your effectiveness on the battlefield. Let me ask you about a term of art in the military called rules of engagement. I remember from my time in DOD that we, when we went into the Kosovo Air War, for example, we spent a lot of time studying the rules of engagement. What are rules of engagement? Well, there's a formal definition, and I won't go directly to that, but from a commander standpoint, the rules of engagement are those directives that are issued by a military authority. And that, again, for us, starts with the Secretary of Defense's office through the combatant commanders, and it ends up with commanders in the field. And these rules delineate the circumstances under which various levels of forces can be used and the limitations of force. Because force is used for political purposes. Force isn't used just on its own. And so the political purposes, the aims of the war, have rightfully governed the amount of force and the use of force in every war, however large or small. Now, there's some common rules that apply generally. For example, all soldiers have the right to self-protection. But then there are specific rules for each theater. So Afghanistan, for example, always had a little bit different rules of engagement than Iraq. And the rules of engagement for the global war against al-Qaeda, ISIS, and their ilk had rules of engagement that were different still. And nowadays, the rules of engagement include what we call escalation of force. This was very important for me in Haiti, for example, because there wasn't really a requirement for lethal use of force in very many circumstances. But there were tense situations in which we would escalate the force through physical intimidation, through use of non-lethals, through intimidating deployment of forces like helicopters that would escalate up to warning shots and then to lethal engagement. So we want to always use force, all that's necessary to accomplish the mission, but only the minimum required to do the mission. And in every case, these rules are derived from international conventions, international laws, our own code, and sometimes they can get complicated. That's why before you deploy, you conduct some education and training. You bring in your officers, you bring in your sergeants, and you have some training on the rules of engagement for that specific theater that they're going to deploy in. And then you construct situational training exercises, situations that we might face in that environment, and you build into the conditions of those trainings, ambiguity in the rules of engagement, just so soldiers, sergeants, and officers are challenged to apply the rules of engagement correctly in real situations. Of course, in training, it goes sometimes well, sometimes not. That's why we have training. And so if the rules of engagement were violated in training, it's a stop, come back, do an after-action report, clarify the situation, and then redo the exercise. And let me emphasize again, the soldier's right to self defense is always number one on the rules of engagement. And we should be proud. We should be very proud of a force that has this degree of sophistication and can actually exercise this degree of sophistication. It's, I think, why we're asked to come to countries. If country X, pick one, Somalia, Iraq, when they see us come, they expect this kind of behavior. And they don't ask other countries because this kind of behavior is not embedded in the behavior of other armies. So sometimes complicated, sometimes misunderstood, but very important to the employment of force overseas. 
Thank you. I hope our listeners appreciate it. That's why we call this the engine room of democracy. This is how it really runs. And we're very grateful for that. Let me, if I could, shift to ask about the culture of being in the military. It is quite different from civil society. My guess is you spent much of your professional life in the military living on military bases. I've had a privilege of going to a lot of military bases. Boy, it's like Mayberry, USA. I mean, these are wonderful, orderly places, lovely. But what does it mean when you have a kind of a unique environment that the military creates for itself in these bases, how does it stay connected more broadly to American society? You're right about Mayberry. (laughs) There's no doubt about it. When we were stationed at West Point, for example, my daughters could roam West Point and they were second through fifth grade, the older daughter and the younger daughter two years under that. They could roam West Point because from their standpoint, there were 4,000 aunts and uncles that they could contact (laughs) and bring them home. And we felt very safe doing that. You know, we put reasonable limitations on where they went, but once they started riding bikes, they were everywhere. And they had an unbelievable environment in which to see women leaders, women sports players, women cadets. And so they had an environment that was not just safe, but very conducive to their own development and their own vision of themselves. And the post set that kind of environment up so that there's not just an environment for children, but a cohesion among the force. So when you live on a post, you generally go to church if you're from a faith tradition on post. Your children's social activities, sports activities, service programs are run by the post. You work on the post, so you're going to work. As a battalion commander, I walked four blocks from my house to my battalion headquarters. There's a camaraderie that's built around having barbecues together, talking together. So this really is Mayberry. We even have our own health care system. Medics in our units are authorized to treat dependents when time is available. And so my daughters to this day, when I was in the 1st Ranger Battalion, view the physician's assistant in the 1st Ranger Battalion as the first doctor they ever knew, who also, by the way, repelled into the Christmas party as Santa Claus. <laughs> So, I mean, this really is, like you said, Mayberry. The Volunteer Army mitigated this a little bit, but not too much in my view, because all of us as commanders had a civic responsibility, a community relations program, where the post commander, the senior general in charge, and I did this when I was a commanding general, would detail certain brigade level commanders to be our representative with the community. And so the brigade commander would go out to the community, participate in maybe a Rotary Club or a Lions Club or whatever, find out what the mayor or the chief of police or the school superintendent may need in terms of military support. And consistent with the law, you know, we would provide that for parades, for examples, or if there was a community celebration of some sort and they needed static displays. And so these were relationships. And when I entertained as a senior commander, I would often bring commanders, sergeants, majors together with mayors and chiefs of police and superintendents, representatives of Congress from our district. But 9-11, when we closed the post down, I think really had a significant impact on this relationship. We had to close a post necessarily, that's all fine, but it had a negative effect because now you had to have a pass to get on post. And now you had guards. And now you had guns at the post here in, in the United States. And this set up a physical as well as a psychological barrier between us and the community that we protect. And then we had fast rotations into Iraq and Afghanistan, where commanding generals and their headquarters were rotating in, and their subordinate units on a different rotation schedule were rotating. And so the focus 
became that. And the community relations, just because of bandwidth, started to fall off. So this reconnecting, I think, will take time. And it's going to take a demand pool on both sides. The military guys are going to have to realize, hey, look, force protection should be consistent with the threat. It doesn't have to be uniform everywhere. And we should take some precautions but we should take only the necessary precautions. And they're going to have to figure out ways to give the right passes, permanent passes, to community leaders so that they can come on and off host however they want. And then community leaders, I think, are going to have to do the same thing. They're going to have to demand, say, look, uh, you know, you're part of our community economically. You have to be part of our community socially, politically, and psychologically as well. That's fascinating, Jim. Thank you. Really interesting. Could I take you to your experiences in Iraq, maybe Haiti, other places where you've been in war theaters? Let me ask, how does a military leader like you think about the legal constraints on the use of force? What does lawful use of force mean to a military officer? I think we have to split the idea. Lawful use of force outside the United States, lawful use of force inside the United States. And inside is going to be a little more complicated. Outside, the view, I think, is relatively common. We defend the United States, consistent with international laws and norm and consistent with our own laws. And here, the general tradition of just war theory is a very helpful guide, which, by the way, is taught at West Point, taught at ROTC across the country, is part of our professional military education all the way up and through the war college. We use force outside the United States generally for a just reason, defense of the United States or one of the other recognized exceptions, a last resort justified by a competent authority, leader of a state or an international organization that has a probability of success, that it's not just wasted or wanton use of force, and that the force is proportional. These are relatively consistent. I think you can see if you go back to our recent wars, all of these play out from the first Gulf War through Bosnia, through Kosovo, the arguments we had about Somalia, the justification for use of force in Afghanistan, the justification argument we had over Iraq and still are having, the global war on terrorism and the justification for use of force across transnational borders. So I think outside the United States, this general framework is relatively common. And while the application causes the kinds of arguments that as a democracy we want to have, there's really little argument about the framework, the general framework. Now, inside the United States, the general rule is federal forces, active duty forces should not be routinely involved in the enforcement of law inside the United States. And this has a long tradition going back to our Revolutionary War. And it's a good tradition to have. Generally, federal forces, and I'll get a little bit because this is a tricky distinction. Federal forces, active duty forces are used only in extremis and under one of three major conditions. First, the governor asks for help because the governor is unable to handle the situation himself or herself. A second state is unwilling to enforce the federal law. Here we saw this in the desegregation of schools. The first case, the riots in Los Angeles is a good example. The third case, states face insurrection. Well, luckily we haven't faced that. In this case, if the governor is unable to enforce federal law. So those are the three. And then there's kind of a fringe case like Katrina in New Orleans, where the natural disaster produces general unlawful conditions. But the governor, again, there asked for help. So those are the general conditions. The tricky part is the definition of a federal force. Here, the National Guard 
and reserves come in. The reserves are federal forces by definition. The National Guard is split because they are both state forces and federal forces. The governor can actually direct, usually through the governor's adjutant general, the use of National Guard for state purposes to help local authorities in either civil unrest or natural disasters. The governor can do this without any permission required from the federal level. But the Guard can be federalized. So if federalized, then it can be used across state boundaries and it can be used overseas. This is part of what the military calls the total force. So we have a, in the Army, I'll use that because I'm most familiar with it, in the Army, the active guard and reserve form the whole Army. And the Army could not execute large operations, could not fight large wars, as we had seen in the last 20 years, without the guard and reserve. But to use the guard overseas, you have to federalize it. And so the Guard is equipped just like the active duty force. It looks just like the active duty force in terms of its uniforms. It's trained very similarly to the active force. The standards required to become an officer and to get promoted in the National Guard are federally mandated because when they come on active duty, we have to expect the same level of performance. So in many ways, the Guard and the reserves and the active force are one. But with respect to their employment within the United States, they are not one. And the rules that govern the use of force in the United States distinguish between state use of the Guard and federal use of the Guard. And federal use of the Guard generally requires one of the three exceptions. The governor asks for federal forces to come in, in which case the National Guard is federalized and used as part of that force. The state is unwilling to enforce federal laws, so the Guard would become federalized, I think, as President Kennedy did. And under the state's inability to enforce the law, the federal government would also federalize the National Guard in that case. This discussion is really pretty sophisticated. And luckily, not very many people have to know about it <laughs> because it does have some distinctions. Inside the Army, though, among the officer corps and the senior sergeants, this understanding is pretty well known. They know the distinctions that I talked about. And again, these distinctions is something that all of us as American citizens should be very proud of. To have a set of soldiers and officers and NCOs that understand this level of sophistication and can operate and it is a significant achievement for a democracy. I have to say, though, in this point, there's an issue of trust that's very important here. Because to make this work, the lawful use of force, whether outside or inside the United States, there has to be a habit of trust. On the uniform side, the military side, that trust is based upon getting legal and prudent orders from the civil authorities through the chain of command. This experience of getting legal and prudent orders is the basis of trust. We can say in the junior level when I was a lieutenant captain, you know, I didn't worry about all the distinctions that we just talked about because I trusted that the kinds of distinctions I just talked about were part of the discussion prior to issuing orders. And this allows everybody in the military and people outside the military, the civil authorities who control us, allows everyone to focus on their part of the problem and not have to worry about whether somebody else is doing their job. This trust is the glue that makes the lawful use of force work.
Very powerful. Jim, let me take you back, if I could, to Iraq. You know, Americans generally have heard the term Geneva Conventions, but it's probably more of an icon in vocabulary rather than real knowledge. How did the Geneva Conventions impact you as a commander in Iraq? Well, the conventions provide an important legal and moral foundation for what goes into the rules of engagement. So if you structure your rules of engagement correctly and you educate your leaders and train your soldiers and units correctly, what specifically the Geneva Conventions say recedes in importance. What comes to the foreign importance are the rules of engagement and the education and training that follows or precedes deployment. If you get that part right, then you set the right conditions for compliance to the conventions through compliance with the rules of engagement. I think I need to repeat this training business. Before you deployed, before I went to Haiti, Bosnia, before I went to Honduras in the 80s, before I went to Iraq and Afghanistan, I mean, every, every rotation starts with a training plan. And part of that training plan includes rules of engagement training for leaders, so they understand the kind of legal foundation and training and application. And this application is very important. We take it seriously at home station. And then when we go to the National Training Center or the Joint Readiness Training Center for their final exercise before deployment, the situational training exercises are very complex, not just in employment, but in the rules of engagement. So we embed this as one of the habits and behaviors before you go. Now, is there tension? Yeah, absolutely, there's tension. But the short answer is once we finish this, if we do this right, there is much less tension. And I would say in many cases, no tension at all. But let me just give you one example from 2nd Lieutenant Dubik in his first platoon in the 82nd. Vietnam's still going on. This is 1971. And we're running down Arden Street in front of all the paratrooper battalions in formations, in boots, and we're singing our, you know, songs. And the sergeant starts a song that has a line in it, napalm sticks to kids. Stop running, pull over to the side of the road, immediate discussion about why that's the wrong attitude to embed in your force. So you see this going on, not just with me, I mean, that's my personal example, but you see this going on routinely, even in physical training, in regular training, in discussions in barracks, because we want very much to be the kind of force that models American values. And we don't just defend America, we represent America. So these conventions, while they're not really specifically reflected, they're reflected in the rules of engagement, they're reflected in the Army values, and they're reflected in the way we educate our leaders and train our forces. Jim, thank you. The military operates under its own legal framework, the so-called Uniform Code of Military Justice. Would you describe that for us? How does that differ from normal law? Well, John, you're going to get a commander's view, uh, not a lawyer's view, but a commander's view that has been advised by lawyers you know, for 37 years. I think the most important point for everybody to know is the Uniform Code of Military Justice is derived from the U.S. Code. So there's nothing in it that is inconsistent with the U.S. Code. But there are some things in it that are specific to the enforcement of military discipline in time of war, which, of course, we have to practice before we go to war. As you said in the introduction, we have all the guns. When we go somewhere, we carry lots of guns. And so it's incumbent on us to use that power, that capacity in only the right ways. 
So when you're a commander and you have Uniform Code of Military Justice Authority, which you do from the time of 27-year-old captain, it's the first time you have UCMJ authority, you go to a special school that teaches you how to exercise your authority, your legal authority, consistent with the code and the law. This is important because it makes a commander realize that he or she is acting on behalf of the nation through the code, that the soldier or leader in question that's subject to the code is not just a soldier, but also a citizen and deserves the rights to be respected with dignity and fairness, just as he or she would be in a civilian legal proceeding. It's also a reminder that the Uniform Code is a tool to establish good order and discipline, whether that good order and discipline is on a battlefield or at home. It's a tool just like training, just like education, just like professional development, a good command climate. And it's a reminder that good order and discipline does not flow from arbitrary injustice. And I had this really beat into me, when, not physically, but emotionally when I was a company commander. I brought UCMJ charges under Article 15 against a soldier on the advice from one platoon leader and platoon sergeant. They brought me the case. I decided to try this soldier in a non-judicial punishment. And at the end of it, there's a right to appeal. He appealed. He went to the battalion commander, now unfortunately dead, uh, Bo Baker, and the battalion commander overturned my decision. And then he called me in and said, Jim, you're going to think that I didn't support you. Actually, I did. And he said, there was no case against this soldier. You should have listened and you should have investigated as I did. And if you would have, you would have found, you know, one, two, three, four, whatever he found. And because of those facts, it would have been injustice to impose the punishment that you had thought. So you go back, you think about this, and you bring in your chain of command and you remind them that good order and discipline does not flow from injustice. It was a powerful lesson. To me, I was 28 years old, and I never forgot that lesson. In Iraq, though, this was much more difficult because you're in an ongoing war, and you're in the middle of a counterinsurgency, a counteroffensive. You're building the army as you're developing the government, as you're fighting the war. And my role there was much more indirect. I had to act through the Minister of Defense, Abdul Qadir, or through the Iraqi Joint Force, General Babakar, or through the Director of Training, General Hussein. My discussions with them was over their code. How were they going to develop their code? They didn't really have one that was based on a democracy. They had one based on service to Saddam Hussein. And it was inappropriate for a democracy. So my question to them is, what were they going to do in the interim? So they started wrestling with that. It didn't start with me. I followed Marty Dempsey. He followed Dave Petraeus. This has been working. But I have to say it was slower. If you looked at gears, the gears of creating a uniform code of military justice is a big gear that turns slowly. The gear to train and equip and fight a counterinsurgency is a gear that can go real fast. And so the focus to get security was spinning very quickly. The focus to get this military to turn into a democracy was going slowly. In these terms, this is a long-term issue. This is one of the reasons I say we left too early. We have set the conditions for these long-term kinds of effects to obtain, but they were going to obtain over a decade, not over 18 months. And so I would say, in the end, I would give myself an A for effort and probably a D for the outcome, because the outcome required more time than we were willing to take.
Jim, can I ask you a controversial question about Iraq? And that is the role of mercenaries on the battlefield, politely sometimes called them contractors. But these are people that are there through commercial contracts, not through military chain of command structures and orders. Your thoughts about contractors, mercenaries on the battlefield? Well, I'm glad you also call them contractors because armed mercenaries and contractors. Contractors is kind of the polite way to term armed mercenaries, but in many ways, that's exactly what they are. Let me just say, I really don't like the extent to which we use these armed mercenaries called contractors. When the U.S. deploys and employs its military force, it should do so for reasons that are important to the nation and use its armed forces to attain those aims. Our armed forces represent our nation. These contractors represent their company. And okay, most of them behaved well, but in the exceptions where they didn't, it caused huge strategic problems for the United States and introduced armed contractors into the norm of battle, the norm of warfare, in ways that I think will come back to haunt us in the long term. You know, we've gotten into using these guys, these mercenaries, because we wanted to wage war, a global war. Think of this. We committed after 9-11 to fight a global war on three theaters simultaneously, Iraq, Afghanistan, and across the globe. But we never sized the military to do that because we convinced ourselves from the start that it was going to be quick. And when it wasn't, we just decided that it would be easier to expand the force by using contractors. And we use them for many logistics functions. We use them for protective of our bases. We use them for protection of our diplomats. And my view, we overuse them. Okay, many of them performed pretty well. I was protected by contractors that were all British citizens. And I was very satisfied with their performance. But there's another angle here that we introduced as a norm, these kinds of contractors into the use of military force. And now what you see, and I'm not blaming us for this, but I'm just identifying a phenomenon, below the threshold of war, Crimea, Ukraine, the South China Sea, they're now in these gray zones that have been labeled other names in other places. Mercenaries, armed contractors are becoming the norm. And again, it's often to hide the truth of who is actually doing what to whom. So I think that this idea of contractors and use of mercenaries really requires a much broader discussion within the security system of the United States. And quite frankly, I think it deserves much more discussion diplomatically and in maybe an updating of the Geneva Conventions and norms. This has been fabulous, Jim. Let me ask just one more question, if I may. It's also controversial, and that is the issue of war crimes. Combat is a very brutal thing, and people that live in combat environments are challenged emotionally and intellectually and ethically in ways none of us civilians can quite comprehend, and it changes a sense of personal norm. I know from your own personal background, you're a religious man. How do you think about this issue of war crimes? Well, John, the war crimes themselves, I think really, at least from my perspective, are less controversial than the overall phenomena of war. I'll try to separate the two out. War crimes are crimes, pure and simple. When one is suspected, we have a proper process. You report it. Or if it's not reported, you find out later, you investigate it. You conduct a trial if it's necessary after the investigation. You judge it, you sentence it, and you move on. 
The Uniform Code of Military Justice has very clear guidelines for how to deal with war criminality. Enforcement is very important because, yes, war is brutal. Yes, war involves necessarily killing, ending human lives. War uses the lives, and it's a very uncomfortable way to put it. But when you're conducting a war, you, you are using and risking lives for purposes, supposedly, that are worth that use. But killing in war is separated from murder, from butchery, and there's different words for this. And so you can't put up. This goes back to the rules of engagement. This goes back to training. This goes back to education. You can't put up with someone who believes falsely that the line between legitimate killing and murder and butchery is non-existent. So war crimes take care of that. The much more troubling part of war is that war is a phenomena in which the morally justified and the morally repugnant coexist, sometimes in the very same act. This is incredibly difficult to even put your arms or your brain around. When I teach this in the summer at a, a special war studies program, we go to Gettysburg and we stand at the railroad cut on day one. There was a cut made for a railroad on Gettysburg on McPherson Ridge. Where there's no railroad going through it yet. There was just the depression. The Confederates came rushing across. They didn't know the cut was there because it looked like a level field. They fall in. They climb their way out. The Union guys come back in a counterattack, push them back in a cut, and are shooting down in a cut in which it was just uh, horrific. This is what I mean about morally justified and morally repugnant. Sometimes the killing, this is the killing of soldiers who are shooting back. It was, if you read the letters of soldiers, reflected as a very repugnant thing to do. This happens nowadays. Suicide bomber comes driving through your checkpoint, crashes through, driving through the bullets you're shooting at. Finally, you stop the bomber. You go to the car, disengage the bomb, and find that the bomber had his family in there. Now, you did nothing. Everything you did was morally justified. Everything you did was consistent with the law. It is still morally repugnant to see what you did. This is the part of war that if it affects your personal norms, it starts to ask you, what kind of person am I? I didn't think I was that kind of person. Here, I did this. And it challenges your sense of morality, not just personally, but it challenges the network of people that all of us have to form who we are. Because when you come home from war, you're not the same person your pastor thinks you are or your friends. This is why training on the rules of engagement and educating your force is so important. It doesn't change the moral repugnancy, but it allows you to understand it's part of the phenomena, not part of you. And another reason why these kinds of long-term professional military education and long-term training requirements are so important to retaining the quality of the force that we have. Jim, thank you. I had an additional question, but you've already answered it, and it was about how we use the military in domestic security situations. So, so let me just skip to wrap up. I've listened so carefully to your really superb presentation today. If I can sum it up, I guess I'd say that rule of law and lawful behavior is fundamental. It's fundamental for the integrity of our military, and it's grounded in the Constitution. That To sustain this, it depends on institutions that we create and to ensure compliance and procedures that we enforce, and we enforce them with discipline and rigor, and that it's central to a professional military establishment of our stature. And then finally, there is a 
political consensus that just transcends politics. Because as you said, we take an oath to protect and defend the Constitution. And these foundational issues have to be part of the American civic consciousness if we're going to survive as a country. I'm just grateful for you. Well, thank you, John. Look, I can't sum it up any better than that. I'll just say, though, that this set of institutions and procedures and people that we choose to head them, this is a fragile set, and we should not take it for granted. It deserves all the attention that you have given it in a set of podcasts that you're doing. Our law and our Constitution and the values embedded in it, they form the foundation of our profession and form the foundation of the nation that we defend and protect and represent. And I think we should be proud. I've always been proud of that aspect of my profession and I'll look forward to continuing that, even in difficult circumstances like war. Well, I want to say thank you. It's a very moving opportunity for me to listen to you. I want to say thank you for 37 years of serving the country, but you're not done. I mean, you continue to do it, and I'm so grateful for it. I think all of us today have benefited enormously from listening to your perspective on these complicated and important issues. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. No, thanks. Got a little emotional there talking about yeah. uh, war. But me too. It's an emotional thing. It is an emotional thing, but I thought your point was really powerful. And, you know, our audience needs to hear it. And I'm so grateful that you've given us this chance. I'm really very moved by all of this. Thank you so much. Okay. See you all again, right. John. Thank you very Take much. Take care now. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 